She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium Season 1. Episode 19. Powers, Principalities, Thrones, and Dominions. Oh, that's long. Quite a title. Yeah. Yeah. Before we start, quick correction. Um, On the last episode, which was several weeks ago, I mentioned that I'm going to start calling Donnie Faster IDF, but I can't because Faster starts with a PF, not an F. And so we're going to go with IDP forever, baby. (laughs) Yeah. And he's going to come up in this episode a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Which makes sense because this is part two of last episode even though yeah. it kind of isn't but yeah, i mean it already. is and i actually i had a lot of thoughts on that because it kind of is but like it doesn't feel like it and so it's kind of weird no it doesn't feel like a part two you're like it's the next episode right it's like they're still dealing with the shit from last episode mm-hmm. and i guess the one argument that you could make that it is part two is that it is dealing with bletcher's murder which mm-hmm. happened in the last episode, and we do see a flash of um, what's his face, his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So, like Lucy Butler, yeah. So, yeah. like there is a connection, but it really doesn't. It really just feels like the normal progression of a series. <laughs> like this thing happened in one episode. Now we have to deal with it in yep. the next one. Yeah, and we get some. We don't just get flashbacks of Bletch. We actually get some new footage with we the do. actor. So yes, as well, he is yeah. in it. Yeah. So. And he was filmed doing that extra footage in British Columbia, Canada. And the episode originally aired on Friday, April 25th, 1997. Damn, you're getting all professional and shit with your like segues. Look at that. Yeah. Well, and also that's because the whole episode was filmed in British Columbia, Canada. It wasn't just like Bletch. And it was funny too, because it's supposed (laughs) to be Seattle. And there are parts of it that look very similar, but then they show like an angle and you're like, that's not in downtown Seattle. Like I know downtown Seattle. Well, this one is in Seattle and Bellingham, which I wonder if they went and visited R.W. Goodwin. R.W. Goodwin, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't the cigarette smoking man live up there too? William B. Davis? I'm pretty sure he does because I had a friend who (sighs) waited tables up there and she used to wait on him all the time at this cafe. I don't know. I think I remember when when the very first time we ever talked about him. I think he was born like in Toronto or something, but then moved to British Columbia. So I don't know. I don't know where he lived. Maybe he just came down to Bellingham all the time to eat breakfast. I don't know. It's possible. Maybe. It's not that far from Canada. Bellingham is like right near the border. So it's a pretty quick drive. You just have to go through yeah. customs. But yeah, I don't think Seattle is right on the border, but really it's not. There's like, no, a Seattle's a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. A couple hours south. Bellingham is, and when Blaine really is, Blaine is like the city that's right there on the border but bellingham's just slightly south of that blaine huh roswell roswell (laughs) yeah in this episode angels and demons and frank black oh my and not dan brown angels and demons fuck that shit so yeah yeah no this episode was written by ted mann and harold rosenthal and directed by thomas j wright hmm so Imagine you're casting a television program, and the character is kind of a skeezy but respectable high-end lawyer for, like, white-collar criminals who are definitely guilty. Like, can you visualize that person and, like, what they're wearing, especially in the 90s? Okay, 
So that guy comes out of some bougie, like proto Trader Joe's grocery store, and he's carrying a bag of groceries. And then we see a 20s-ish guy in like black, like a leather jacket and stuff. And you're probably going to cast him in like the Michael Pear role, like in a remake of like Streets of Fire or Eddie and the Cruisers. Anyway, mm -hmm. he's watching the lawyer as he approaches his huge black car and then puts his groceries in the back seat. And then the younger guy closes his eyes and takes a deep breath. And then he opens his eyes and lets out the breath. And the lawyer is about to get in his vehicle, but then he turns and looks at the young man in black. And the young man in black says, by Uriel and Raziel, powers, principalities, thrones, and dominions, I bind and command you, stand. <gasps> and then Frank Black comes out of the store and sees the two of them. And the young man raises his right arm towards the lawyer. I mean, his palm is like forward, like he's gonna like fire a repulsor, like Iron Man. And he speaks again and says, I, Samuel, bound by his will, command you, depart. And as he speaks these words, he seems to be clearly holding a gun. Mm. And onlookers scatter. And then Frank sees Samuel holding his palm out raised, no gun, and lightning shoots from his hand and into the lawyer's chest. And then that transitions into the gun firing and the lawyer slumps down against his car. And Frank runs towards the lawyer. And then Samuel drops the gun and says, Die, you son of a bitch. And then Frank checks the lawyer. And he's dead. And then he walks over to Samuel and he puts up a hand like, hey, you know, and he bends <laughs> down and he picks up the gun. And the hammer of the gun is still cocked. Like the gun hasn't been fired. And so Frank lowers the hammer and then looks at Samuel. And then it's the titles. Da -da. Yeah. Angels and demons. Ooh. This is some supernatural shit right here. Uh -huh. I mean, the show Supernatural, very specifically. Also supernatural. <laughs> yes, yeah, also supernatural. Yeah. Also, I totally, totally thought this was going to be like, oh, it's Frank's day off. He's going grocery shopping. We learned that is not <laughs> the case. But that is... I don't know. I was like, wow, it's lucky that he happens to be at this grocery Even store. Even on Frank's Day Off. That's kind of You know, because it's, it's like the murder she wrote problem where, like, she's wherever she goes, there's a murder. I was like, oh, wherever Frank goes, there's like supernatural uh -huh. shit and murders and ritualistic yeah. killings. <laughs> Guy yep. can't catch a break, but that's not actually the case. We'll learn as the episode goes on. Yeah, but that and that is that's what it looks like, right? Because you're you don't know what's going on. You see this shit happening, and then Frank comes out of the grocery store and is like, "Oh shit, what's going on?" <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So then we get our epigraph: Paranoia is just a kind of awareness, and awareness is just a form of love. That's by Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. Hey, this quote actually comes from an extremely long article. That was in Rolling Stone in June of 1970, and you can find online in an article that is a flashback, Charles Manson, The Incredible Story of the Most Dangerous Man Alive, that was actually published on the 21st of November, 2017, on rollingstone.com. And there's a link okay. for it in the show notes, so you can read it. So, that's it. Link in the show notes. Nice. But... All right, so moving... Oh. If you thought yeah. you were getting off easy, <laughs> I'd say you are a fool. So let's get some Bible stuff in. So the title of this episode and Samuel's words come from Colossians 1.16. 
the King James versions of chapter 16 and 17, because they actually make a complete sentence, read, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That's where 16 stops and then 17 finishes the sentence. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. So okay. again, it's just basically saying like, God did everything. Yay. So interesting that they mixed up the order. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. But I guess then they kind of did it almost backwards. I wonder if it's just because it sounded better. I don't know. Did they? Let's see. Oh, they uh, throw almost, they, but except almost. for thrones and dominions. Yeah, thrones they and, didn't. Well, and thrones and dominions—that's just too good. Like you got to keep that in order, right? Dominions and thrones—that doesn't sound right. Thrones and dominions—that that rolls. But yeah, they did. Otherwise, yeah, they did powers first, then principalities and thrones and dominion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So Samuel, which in the episode they spell well, they don't in the episode we don't see it, but in the credits they spell it with two M's: S A M M A E L. That would be Samuel. S-A-M-A-E-L, who is an archangel in Talmudic and post-Talmudic lore. He is a figure who is the accuser or adversary. He is commonly believed to be Satan in the book of Job. Although many of his functions resemble the Christian notion of Satan to the point of sometimes being identified as a fallen angel, he is technically not evil since his functions are also regarded as resulting in good, such as destroying of sinners. In fact, repeat reference because we've just been listening to the fuck out of it the monster talk episode i recently listened to one about the devil and they were talking about how like you know like the devil and satan and now like the like who they are and what they represent have kind of changed over time and there are actually some biblical scholars who believe that satan actually isn't a bad guy and wasn't like the fallen angel he was actually like like just got like god's like right hand dude Mm -hmm. and like when he is like talking to god about like you know, doing all this shit to Job. And then also like with Jesus in the desert, he isn't like trying to be evil and making these people suffer just for the sake of suffering. He's actually saying like, God, you believe in these dudes? How do you know that they're truly like faithful? We need to make Uh sure. So it's like, that's the whole point of the book of Job. And then also with Jesus, it's not so much that he's there to tempt Jesus, but actually just to make sure that Jesus, I guess, literally to tempt Jesus, like, are you what you say or would you accept some stuff so kind of right also we get some nice um correlation with frank black in this episode about that kind of action going on too yeah 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 and then samuel mentions uriel and raziel which again if you watch supernatural you know who these guys are at least in the supernatural verse but they do appear and their stories are supposed to be biblical so it's probably similar okay well i mean they are biblical because uriel is known in the russian orthodox tradition and in folk (laughs) catholicism as one of the seven major archangels Mm -hmm. and recognized in the anglican church as the fourth archangel he is also well known in european esoteric medieval literature He's also known as the master of knowledge and the archangel of wisdom in apocryphal, Kabbalistic, and occult works. Uriel or Ariel has been equated or confused with Uriel with an A, Nuriel, Urian, Jeremiel, Vitriel, Sariel, Suriel, Puriel, Phanuel, <laughs> Jacob, Azrael, and Raphael. So lump them all together. <laughs> In the secret book of John, an early Gnostic work, Uriel is placed in control over demons who help Yaldabaoth create Adam 
And then he is often identified as a cherub and the angel of repentance standing at the gate of Eden with a fiery sword. Yeah, I knew Uriel was the one with the sword. Yeah. And I don't know if I know that from Good Omens or Supernatural, but it's one of those two. Okay. Because I'm pretty sure it's Aziraphale who has, uh, or maybe he, he helps, he gives Adam and Eve the sword to keep them warm or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's Good Omens. It's not real. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it is. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know unless Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett tapped into something, which honestly, entirely possible. Those guys are pretty. I mean, amazing, you basically so. just look at the old works and then take them and kind of, you know. Yeah. Oh, I know. Do what you yeah, want with them. That's kind so, of what they did. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of what happened with the Bible. Anyway, Raziel is an angel within the teachings of Jewish mysticism or the Kabbalah of Judaism, who is the angel of secrets and the angel of mysteries. He is also called the keeper of all magic. So he's kind of like also like right hand dude to God because he stands by God's throne and therefore hears and writes down everything that is said and discussed. Mm -hmm. And possibly because of that, he is said to have written the Sefer Raziel Hamalk. I'm probably saying that wrong, which is the book of Raziel the angel. And that is a grimoire said to contain all secret knowledge and considered to be a book of magic. Nice. Nice. And apparently, going back to that whole like Garden of Eden shit, apparently Raziel is the one he let Adam and Eve have this book to look at it, and that's how they apparently found their way back to the Garden of Eden, and they were then able to be buried there. I don't. That's, some of those stories get crazy. I don't know. So yeah. So both uh, Uriel and Raziel are apparently tied to the Garden of Eden somehow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Bible done. Yay. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. you knew I wasn't going to let that go. So <laughs> Then we're in Bellingham, Washington, and it's four days earlier. Oh, they're doing that shit to us. Mm-hmm. Peter Watts is in a house with police, and it's a crime scene. There is a summoning circle on the floor and a body on an altar. There's blood drained into a chalice, lit candles. There's an upturned pentagram and upside down crosses. There's also a grimoire. <gasps> and he describes it all over the phone to Frank, who's at home in his kitchen. Catherine is in the kitchen as well. Frank tells Peter that he isn't ready to come back. Peter says he'll call if he needs help. Frank hangs up and looks at Catherine. She looks at him, but says nothing. Mm. Then we see Peter talking to the detective in charge, Detective Damon Rummer. The victim lived alone. He was a deacon at First Emmanuel Church. Peter sees someone standing right outside the window looking in. It's Samuel, who then disappears. So Peter goes to the window, which we now see is a second story window. So obviously no one could be standing outside it. And no one is down below besides the police, although there is a thin ledge under the windows. Peter asks if anyone saw the kid looking in the window, and they all just kind of look at him blankly. Mm. So then Frank is watching his face in the bathroom, and Catherine comes in and asks if Peter asked for his help. He says he isn't ready. And she's like, well, when? She says he knew it was coming. He has to come to terms with who he is. He can't deny it to himself or to her. He tells her he forgets sometimes that he starts to give him a call. Then he remembers. Bob is dead. Murdered in their house. Catherine says he has to go back to work. If they keep going like this, it's only a matter of time before something gives. 
Can you imagine having a, your friend murdered in your house? No, and I don't honestly, if anyone was murdered in my house and I had been in the house with my child while the murderer was in there and leaving weird shit in my fridge, I don't know that I could go back to that house. Like, I realize that it's not that easy. You can't just necessarily get rid of a house, but like, it's just, man, I don't know that I could ever sleep in that house again. Yeah, it would just be messed up. Just because, even if it wasn't like, like all the shit happens in the episode, like with like the stranger in the house uh-huh. and blah blah. But like, like if you just like came home and like your friend was there and they were dead, even if you maybe even if they weren't murdered, I think it would just be like, fuck. Like it would be hard for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, I, it would depend on the situation a lot, but like. I think in this specific situation, yeah, I don't know that I would be able yeah, to sleep. With like, their throat slit and hanging from the rafters in your basement? Yeah, yeah that would be yeah, a little much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably not. So yeah. Jordan comes into the bathroom and she sits on Frank's lap and she asks him if he's staying home from work again. And he and Catherine look at each other and he asks Jordan what she thinks about it. And she's just like, I don't know. Are you? She's so cute. <laughs> and he says, No. But he'll be close and home for dinner. Going back to work. Yeah. Go back to work because I don't think Catherine is pressuring him, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of weird because I feel like she is more like you need to get back to work, but maybe that is the best thing for him. I'm not saying she doesn't know. Well, I think she just knows if he stays and just like doesn't, is just going to keep building and building and building. Yeah. And apparently he has already had like a break at one point. Yes, so, we know that he did. So maybe she's worried yeah. about that happening again. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I started thinking about the fact of like, does the Millennium Group offer bereavement leave? Like, well, how is he paid? Like, does he get a salary? Is he paid by the job? Like, I'm wondering. I mean, we know Catherine has a job, but I'm wondering how, like, what the income is like from the Millennium Group. I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. that's a good question, honestly. I don't know. Yeah. So Frank is looking at crime scene photos, including two of the word Phaistos, which comes from the grimoire that was in the room where the body was, and then one of the body that's covered by a sheet. Um, we saw that when Peter was looking through the book, but I didn't mention it then. But now he's apparently it's important because there's two pictures of it and then a picture of the body. And then rumor says they are not used to this kind of homicide. The victim was eviscerated and his organs were placed in clay pots and then Frank is looking at like bloody like faux Egyptian pots that we have photos of and tells them it's similar to ancient Egyptian embalmers. And then rumor says that there are rumor <laughs> funny, <laughs> going around and wants to know what to tell the public. And Frank says, well, as little as possible for now. Mm-hmm. And then he looks at the grimoire and it's all sealed in a bag. So he's kind of like just turning over looking at it. And then rumor says that after they see the remains, he hopes that Frank can provide some guidance. So they're like, we're hicks. We don't know what to do with this. (laughs) So Phil Bryce explains to Rumor, Peter, and Frank that the knife wound to the neck was the cause of death. The loss of blood would cause the victim to lose consciousness quickly and death would follow from the massive hemorrhaging, allowing for the preparation of the organs like the ancient Egyptians with mineralized salt and other compounds. Peter notes that Bryce seems very knowledgeable about this and asks if it's a professional interest. He seems kind of judgy about it, to be honest. Like, I don't know. It was kind of weird. And Bryce is like, well, I've studied their techniques. 
Rumor says Bryce is an undertaker, but has been acting as coroner for five years. Bryce says they should understand he's not a doctor. He's in mortuary science. Which is pretty common in small towns. Like the coroner is not necessarily like a medical examiner. Sometimes they're even elected. So it's not necessarily someone with a medical degree. You gotta worry about a dude being elected to deal with dead bodies. Well, especially when they're making calls about causes of death and like political decisions. Well, like I that. just think like who uh, why would you be wanting that job? That's cool. <laughs> Someone's gotta do it. Mm-hmm. Necrophilia. <laughs> There's a show on Netflix called The Santa Clarita Diet, and like the woman is a zombie, like she becomes a zombie, and her husband's trying to like find, like that she has to kill to to eat people. But like he goes to this morgue and he's trying to get body parts, and the guy thinks he just has a weird foot fetish or something, like the mortician. And I don't know, it's just really funny for some reason. I just thought of that. <laughs> he's he wants time alone with the feet or whatever and it's like no no uh yeah <clears throat> anyway also is the guy still having sex with his zombie wife because if so then uh, i think i think so oh. she's still kind of alive she's not like a dead zombie oh okay yeah it's kind of weird obviously anyway. it's zombies i i know about that show but there ain't no fucking way i'm watching it so yeah yeah <laughs> don't blame you all right anyway Bryce continues and lifts the sheet. Rumor asks if he knew what was happening to him. Bryce says it's possible. And then Frank begins having flashbacks. He sees someone grab Bletcher from behind and slit his throat. It's Lucy Butler. (gasps) Then Bletch is hanging from the rafter, dead, his throat slit. Bryce says the brain can live on for a few minutes without oxygen. Frank excuses himself, saying he has to go to the restroom and leaves. And everyone looks at each other. Whoa. So Frank comes out of what we assume is the bathroom and into the mortuary showroom full of caskets, which Donnie Faster vibes super mm-hmm. in this scene yeah. right here. Yeah. Peter is waiting for him. And Frank tells Peter that it may be too soon. And Peter apologizes, saying that he pushed him, but then says he needs to tell him something about something he saw. And he tells him about seeing the guy in the window. Two stories up, no ladder, nothing. And then Frank is like, but there's something else. And Peter nods and hands him a packet. And inside are photos of spectators at the crime scene. And Samuel's photo is circled. And of course, that's the guy Peter saw, right? So mm-hmm. Frank says it's always what they hope for, that the criminal will stick around or return to the scene of the crime to witness their work. But Peter notes Frank's tone and says Frank doesn't think so this time. And Frank says he's not even sure he has tried to comment that his clarity is not what he had hoped. Uh-oh. Doesn't trust himself. Phil Bryce is played by Dean P. Gibson, and this is his first television role. First nice. time he's on television. I like him. He's not really in anything I've ever seen when I look at his IMDb stuff. He has been in a bunch of stuff, but I have seen this character in a lot of things like he would have easily fit into like Kolchak or other like 70s and 80s television mm-hmm. so this is his only x-files adjacent universe role he has been in supernatural though so mm. i mean i guess in a way that's x-files adjacent and he was in psych and he's still working as of 2022 according to imdb 
But he's got that, like, when you first see him, like, he's got that kind of haircut and then that demeanor. He looked like you could, like, in a Coltick episode, he would be, like, the bumbling leader of a coven or something. Like, he's oh, got that yeah. kind of, like, you know, kind of, like, he's kind of satanic-y looking a little bit, but not, like, evilly, more of, like, oh, like, stereotypically kind of thing. So, and he's very, like, proper, and he, like, a couple of times he, like, is, like, straightening his lapels while he's talking, and then, like, when Frank has to go, he's, like, all, oh, and, like, you know, fixes his jacket and stuff <laughs> like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's good. He does a good job. Yeah, I definitely see him as more of like a 70s and 80s character than like a 90s character, though, so, which is interesting because mm-hmm. this is his first role. Right. So, and he has a lot of stuff yeah. in the 2000s, it sounds like. Yeah. Like Supernatural and Psych. Yep. He played a, a bartender in Supernatural. Okay. In one episode. But it's early. It's like 2007, I think. So I guess that would be like, okay. what, second season? Season one uh, or maybe, two. Maybe third. Yeah. yeah. So. I think it started in 2006. I'm not entirely sure. Don't quote me on that. Could be wrong. Okay, I won't. <laughs> I think it was 2005. Might be. Anyway. So Samuel is in a wooded area and he's leaning against a tree looking at a park and a children's playground called Adventureland that's across the street. A suspicious looking guy in the park seems to notice Samuel, but then he continues to walk. And we see this young woman and she gives a toddler and a stroller a bottle and we see the suspicious looking guy coming up from behind a tree with a knife. And you're like, oh no, he's going to hurt the baby. And so the woman gets up and she walks away from the stroller, which I don't think you would ever do now. And she goes to get a drink from the water fountain. And we see him kind of look at the baby, but then he comes up behind her and he pulls her up and he slits her throat and her blood lands in the fountain and she falls back on the ground and he drops the bloody knife and he leaves. Ooh. And yeah, we see blood in the fountain and in the water. It's pretty gross. In the mortuary, Rumor comes out and asks Frank for guidance. Frank is hesitant. Peter tries to give some blatantly generic like criminal mind info to ease Rumor, who's nervous about catching this perpetrator. Then officers come in and say a babysitter was killed in the park in broad daylight. They got the guy, though. Rumor tells Frank and Peter that he guesses all his questions have been answered. So everyone leaves and Peter and Frank remain and they look at each other. I do think it's interesting. They just assume that it would be the same guy. Yeah, I guess because it's a small town. And so they're not, they're thinking if there's like one murder, but yeah, it does seem like they pretty much jump to that conclusion immediately, which it's not good. Yeah. The killer Martin is in the interrogation room. Rumor says they have witnesses and the weapon, so they have him. Martin says he wants a lawyer. Rumor says he's coming. Peter gets up and tells Frank they have everything they need. He'll stick around if Frank would rather leave. Martin looks directly at Frank. Frank gets flashes of Bletcher being grabbed from behind and his throat being slit. But the killer is not Lucy Butler this time. It's a man... But then there's a flash of Lucy Butler staring at him. Frank says he thinks that would be better. Rumor says Martin's prints are all over the first victim's house, so they've definitely got him on both. Frank tells Peter to ask him about the man in the window. And Martin continues to stare blankly at Frank. Frank leaves the interrogation room. Creepy. So creepy. 
As Frank walks through the station to leave, the lawyer from the opening is there waiting. He closes his briefcase and walks up to Frank and introduces himself and shakes Frank's hand. Al Pepper, counsel for the accused. Frank responds by just saying, you know, his name, Frank Black. Pepper smiles and says he'll see Frank when he gets back, and then he heads towards the interrogation room. Frank turns and watches him. And then it's commercial. And how did he know Frank was leaving and that he would be coming back? Ooh, creepy. I don't know. Maybe he just. Also, we assumed. know this guy is going to die. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, this is a rewatch episode. I think we can say it. So, if you like frame by frame Frank's flashes where it's not Lucy Butler who slits Bletcher's throat, I'm pretty sure it's the it's Al Peppers, this dude. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, which we don't see him until, well, I guess we saw him in the opening, but maybe you don't make that connection, but I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. It's not the weird ass looking freaky mutant looking dude they had in last episode. That we yeah, I was kind of trying to see if that one of those guys was the same guy, but it's not him. No, I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's Al Pepper. So, yeah. So we come back from commercial, and it's nighttime at the Yellow House. And Frank and Catherine are at the kitchen table talking, and Frank says it was a mistake. He shouldn't have gone. And Catherine says, well, you said they have a suspect, so you don't need to go back, right? And Frank is like, no, he doesn't. But then he gets up and, like, puts the dishes away, because I guess they were, like, having dinner or something like that. Mm -hmm. And she says, but you're going back anyway. So, She can read him like a book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He says he thinks this case has something to do with him in some way he's not clear about yet. And she asks if he's going to be able to sleep. And then he says he'll be up in a little bit. And then in the basement, Frank turns on the light. And he walks over to the spot where Bletcher was hanging. And he looks up at it. And he kind of look, looks around like he's expecting to see something. Mm-hmm. Is there. So, hmm. Then we see the word Phaistos taking up the entire screen of Frank's computer in red letters on a black background. And he's on the phone with Peter Watts and they talk a bit about the word. And then Frank says he doesn't believe the killer wrote it. And Peter's like, well, who then who did? And Frank says someone who wanted to make their presence known. He believes it's a message. And Peter's like, well, to who? And Frank says to me. And he says he doesn't think they have the right guy. Peter is like, he just kind of, he blinks. Like, he's like, what the fuck? What's going on? And then he says it's all pretty much wrapped up where they're at, like in Bellingham. And he was actually about to leave. And he asked Frank if he wants him to stay. And Frank says, well, if you would mind. And so Peter's like, I'll be here as long as you need me. And then he hangs up. And then while he was talking, we hear a door And someone seems to have come into the station because Peter's like in the Bellingham police station. And Peter gets up and goes over to shake their hand. And he's like, Mike, what are you doing here? And Mike says he got a call that he heard they could use some help. And Peter's like, from who? And Mike says, Frank called me. He said that he'd meet them both back here tomorrow and that the case had taken a turn. And Peter is super confused. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like i just talked to frank none of that came up what's happening yeah. all right and then as a reminder we last saw mike atkins in gehana 
He's one of Frank's mentors and then almost died in Gehana after being locked in an industrial microwave. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Also of note that Frank never says what Thestos means, only that it means something to whoever is writing it. And that's probably because it actually doesn't mean anything. It's a Bronze Age archaeological site on the island of Crete. And my guess is they probably used in the episode because it's similar enough sounding to like Mephesto or Mephistopheles to give off like demon vibes that actually have any pre-assigned meaning. So they don't mm-hmm. have to worry about it like meaning something in particular, but it's just kind of a spooky enough name. That okay, yeah, that ominous. makes sense. Yeah. That was surprised when I looked it up. I was like, oh, it actually doesn't, it's like it's not anything. It's just a site in Crete. Mm-hmm. So and it's actually spelled differently now, but with an I instead of an E. Oh. Yeah, but it's it's the same. Like when you look, we type in that word, that's where it goes to. And it tells you like it's like transliterated from the Greek and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where like we used to spell it this way and now we spell it this way sort of things. So, but yeah, so no demon shit. Just, yeah, I think it's just, it sounds demony, right? I mean, it totally does. It does. Faith it sounds goes, demonic ooh. for sure. Yeah. P-F-A-E-S-T-O-S. Fuck, that's demons. That's got to be demons, right? <laughs> It does sound very demonic. Yeah. So at the yellow house, all the lights are out. And we see Frank and Catherine are in bed asleep. Then there's the sound of a door closing. Frank wakes up. He heads downstairs cautiously. It looks like someone's sitting on this chair that they have in their living room. So Frank comes around and sees that it's Bletcher. And his throat is slit. He's trying to say something, but no sound comes out. (gasps) Then Frank wakes up. So that was a dream. He dreamt and he woke up, but he's now he's really awake. And again, he heads down the stairs kind of cautiously and the chair is empty. And from the stairs, Catherine asked if it was Bob. Frank's like, he was trying to say something. It seemed so real. And they go back upstairs and they stop in the hall And again, he says it was so real. She says it's a subconscious influence. He's going to be filtering everything emotionally for a while. He says it's different. He felt it when they were interviewing the suspect. And she's like, you felt Fletcher? Frank says that he knew something about him. Unless he's losing his ability. She asks if he thinks that. He says that he's lost his trust in it. His ability. <laughs> I know. And it's so funny because Chris Carter's like, no, it's it's just, you know, filtering out the, the, the facts. And uh, we all know. But the show is treating it like it is some kind of psychic magical ability yeah. that he has. So mm-hmm. sorry, Chris Carter. I think you lose this round. Yep. Once you put it on the world, you can't control it. Also, don't write it like in a way that contradicts what you're trying to say. Like, don't be stupid. So, yeah. Yeah. The next day, Mike Atkins and Peter Watts are by the fountain where the babysitter was killed. Frank pulls up in his red Jeep Cherokee. They say hi, and then Mike says, you didn't call me, did you? Peter tells Frank someone is impersonating him. He called Mike and said the case was turning. Mike says the strange thing is that it has. (sighs) Peter and Mike tell Frank that eyewitnesses couldn't ID Martin. His bloody jacket was sent to Seattle for testing, but arrived with no bloodstains. What? They're fairly certain the same knife was used to kill the deacon that was used to kill the babysitter, 
but the knife was wiped of prints after being checked into evidence. Every piece of evidence has been lost, tainted, or otherwise compromised. Oh my god, it's like there's a conspiracy. Yeah. Frank asks why. Mike notes that anyone else would be asking how. Frank says there might be a link between these murders and Bob Bletcher's. Frank asks what they know about Martin's lawyer. Peter says, not much yet, but they've been asking to see you. So we see someone writing the word Phaistos repeatedly on a legal pad in different styles. And then they tear off the page and we see that it's Al Pepper, the lawyer. (gasps) He crumples it and throws it into a trash can in the interrogation room where he's sitting alone. Frank enters. Pepper stands and shakes his hand, introducing himself again. Alistair Pepper, representing the accused. Just call me Al, Mr. Black. Frank says Alistair. Pepper says the name carries some notoriety in certain circles. He gestures to the table for Frank to sit. And he says he finds the associations distasteful and goes by Al. He says he'd hoped to speak to Frank earlier, but he was unavailable. He's not privy to all the details, but he understands there have been some evidentiary problems concerning both cases against his client. He's confident he can defend his client and see him freed, but is also quite sure his client is guilty of both crimes. He believes it would be better for his client to concede a degree of guilt and serve some time. Frank asks why. Pepper says in an institutional setting, his client would be able to access therapeutic services and be rehabilitated. Frank says he's not authorized to bargain on the court's behalf or actually anyone's. Except on your own, Mr. Black, Pepper says. He tells Frank he has a very successful law firm and needs an investigator. Someone with Frank's abilities. Mm. Frank says Pepper reminds him of someone and asks if they've met before. Pepper says he seems to be blessed with a familiar face. He offers Frank a partnership. He can name his salary, name his hours, design his own benefits package. Frank stands and says he's not interested. Pepper stands and he says he knows Frank is unhappy in his current circumstances, but all that could change. He and his loved ones would be safe and well out of harm's way. It would be unethical for him to guarantee any advice to his client based on Frank's decision, but he asks Frank to consider it. He'll be happy to answer any of Frank's questions at any time. Pepper begins to leave, and Frank asks why. Pepper stops at the door and turns and smiles. Except that one, he says. (gasps) This is exactly like the judge! Yep. Remember when I was talking about when the episode, I was like, it'd be cool if like they did something like the judge was like the devil. And now mm-hmm. it seems like they're actually doing that, which I'm like, yes. yes! <laughs> Good job. With the lawyer. Thank yeah, you. exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah. I'm so happy at this moment. Anyway. <laughs> also, the guy playing Pepper is fucking like. He's nailing it, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. He does. He's got that right blend of like affable and creepy. And yeah, he is. It's working. It. Yeah. yeah. 
So after Pepper leaves, Frank pulls the crumpled sheet of paper from the trash can and he uncrumples it. And then Peter and Mike enter and Frank asks if Pepper had access to the evidence, if he could have seen this. And they look at the word face dose repeated on the paper in like different, almost like someone's trying to write the word like in different handwriting, like to disguise it kind of thing. It's very interesting. And Peter says he doesn't see how he could have. And Mike just kind of looks at Frank and then like nods like, mm-hmm, we got mm-hmm. some shit right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Pepper is played by Richard Cox, who is blessed with a very familiar face because he's been in a lot of stuff. And honestly, I don't recognize any of the shit he's been in. So like, but he's like, I he does look familiar to me. But yeah, I, I looked him up too, because I was like, I feel like I know him from somewhere. And I mm-hmm. do clearly, but yeah, not not a lot of stuff. Yeah. So and where Tori probably knows him from is he is in a season seven episode of the X-Files, but also he's in an episode of Leverage. So yes. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've seen Leverage several several times in the past few years. So I probably that's probably more likely. Yeah. But also I think he he I think he literally is just blessed with that kind of face because he looks he super is. familiar. Yeah, he yeah. does. Actually, I know exactly who I think he is, and he's not that person. Um, but I'm going to keep that secret, so fuck y'all. <laughs> is it Bob Saget? No, it's not Bob Saget. He doesn't look like a Bob Saget. What are you he's talking got, about? He's got, he's no, got a little, like, no, he doesn't look like him, but no, he's got a little no, bit no, of that no, no, energy. No, 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 no you're yeah. totally wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it is a show that probably no one has ever seen because it was on, on, like, at 1130 at night. It was, like, some first-run syndication, like, like revenge porn TV show. So, like. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. It's the shit I used to watch in the early 90s. Anyway, okay, so in Martin's hearing, the prosecution is asked to deny Martin's bail. As they speak with the judge, we learn that Martin has a history of petty crimes. And while they're talking, Martin turns to look at Frank, who is sitting behind him. And then Pepper notices that Martin is looking and also turns back and looks at Frank. And the judge is like, Mr. Martin, I'd like to get his attention. And it's like, you have stolen a large number of car batteries. And Martin's like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and Martin, Martin is totally giving me Eugene Tube vibes in this scene. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, he is. Yes. Yeah. And then the judge asked Pepper if he has any information that may influence her decision in the amount of bail for Mr. Martin. Pepper says, actually, his client has instructed him that he is not seeking bail and will await his vindication and released. In custody. Hmm. Then Martin asks the judge if he can confess something. And she's like, Mr. Pepper. And Pepper's like, we should discuss any statements you plan to make. But then Martin just says that he cut a detective's neck in Seattle and left him hanging in a basement. He's like, Bletcher. Bob Bletcher. That was his name. And Frank and Peter are like, whoo. <laughs> and the judge is like, takes her glasses off. She's like, the fuck? Yeah. And then Martin says, I don't know why, but it's been bothering me. And then it's a commercial. <laughs> so fucked up. <laughs> There's some shit going it's on. Such a, like, I'm on trial for two murders, and I'm just going to randomly just be like, you know, I really need to confess to this third one, and it's bugging me. Yeah. And put, you know, right I didn't my do lawyer. these other two, but you know what I did do? I did this one. <laughs> oh, man. Whew. 
So then we're at the Bellingham Public Safety Building, which looks like it should be a library. And Samuel is sitting on a bench outside the entrance reading a newspaper. He looks up from the paper like he senses something inside. (gasps) Inside, Mike hands Frank a paper. Martin's attorney has agreed to his being moved to Seattle. Frank thinks the first victim was ritualistically killed to get the Millennium Group involved. To get Frank involved. Mike says Martin is not sophisticated or intelligent enough for that. Frank believes Martin is being used. And then he asks why Mike is here. Who called him? He wants Mike to leave. It could be dangerous. But Mike says he's staying. No discussion. Frank asks him to find out everything he can on Pepper. Then Frank sees Gable House. He arrived to transport Martin to Seattle. He wants to see the son of a bitch who killed Bletcher. Look him in the eye. And then Martin is walked out and Gable House is unimpressed and calls him a little snotball. Frank is going to ride with Gable House and Martin back to Seattle. How far is Bellingham from Seattle? Uh, an hour and a half, two hours, I think. I don't know. Let me, I know okay, I've so, only gone up there once or twice. So this information was already known well ahead of time because Mike is just giving Frank the information, but then Gable House is already there. Yeah, so. let's see. About two hours, hour 40 to two hours, depending on yeah. traffic. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. So then we're at the security entrance of the Seattle Public Safety Building. As the vehicle bringing Martin arrives, there are onlookers lined up in the garage. Samuel is among them. Giebelhaus slows the vehicle and tells the onlookers to move. Frank looks over and sees Samuel, who turns and leaves. Frank tells Giebelhaus to stop the car and let him out. So, you know, Giebelhaus opens his door because he's in the back of a cop car. He can't just open it. And he runs outside, but there's no sign of Samuel. And this is the part where it really does look like it could be Seattle until he like turns left. And then you see something and you're like, that is not Seattle. That building is not there. But otherwise it does. Oh, when Frank is looking around. Yeah. It's pretty good until he turns like one direction and you're like, nope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's always that kind of thing. Like if you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, like in that episode where they're actually in Portland, Oregon, supposedly Uh in the episode and they show like the bridge and you're like, that's fucking Portland right there. Boom. You actually got stock footage of the bridge in portland mm-hmm. but then like in the locations like i'm pretty i mean a lot of it's like little alleys like that i'm probably like oh like you didn't go to portland you just use some stock mm-hmm. footage in portland yeah. i really thought that all the onlookers were like probably like the detectives from seattle who were like there to see who would kill bletcher but apparently they're not because giebel house is like hey you guys get out of the way yeah so apparently they're not they're just like but they don't seem to be like news crew people either they're just like standing there which i don't understand i don't know what's going on yeah i'm not um, entirely sure either yeah, it was kind of weird. I, I think the point is they like, just need a crowd so that they have a place for Frank can stop and yeah. Well, I just for assumed Samuel it would, to stand, it would make yeah. sense, like you know, like hey, like this dude killed our friend and coworker. Right, like, we want to see who this fucker is. Right, but then, but then it also would make sense that it would be like news people, right? Because they know, but then it doesn't seem to be either one. So I'm kind of confused. It's really weird. Yeah, I don't know. In the office, Giebel House is with someone we assume is the assistant district attorney though not one we've met before. Frank enters and asks if she'll be able to bring in an indictment. She says Martin was in the area, they have a bus ticket, they'll be able to get an indictment with the confession. 
But there's no evidence from the crime scene to link him to Bletcher's murder, Frank asks. She says he could recant his confession. His lawyer could argue that the method of confession lends itself to his unreliability, but that Detective Giebelhaus is sure he's the man who killed Bletcher and that Frank is as well. Frank says, no, he isn't so sure. And Giebelhaus is like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. he definitely thought he was, so he's a little confused. Yeah. I don't know. You're more, you're a little more true crimey than I am, so I don't know. Do you normally have more than one assistant district attorney, or is there like just like one? I think there could be multiple if it's a big place, because there's going to be the main district attorney, but then the assistants, because there's going to be a lot of work in a lot of cases, right? Yeah. So they need a Because we've people. we've now seen like three different assistant district yeah. attorneys, and they're all women, but they're not the same person. So I'm just yeah. I don't know how many you would have in a city like Seattle if it is just one or if it's. Okay. I would I would assume it's more than one, but I don't know. Okay, I wasn't sure if you'd have more than one or there would just be one, like a vice president kind of thing. You know, like you don't only have one vice president. But I wasn't sure how that worked, so mm -hmm. I don't know. So anyway, in his cell, now that he's in Seattle, Martin apparently has palmed the razor blade and like produces it and then slices it across his thumb and seems to gain some sort of like physical pleasure from it because he's like, oh. Yeah. Like he's into it. So... So Frank returns home, and as he's walking up to the house, he sees this large black car parked on the street. And inside, Catherine is on the couch speaking with someone who is opposite of her that we can't see because, like, they're against the wall. And Jordan's on the floor playing. And then Frank enters the room, and we see that it's Alistair Pepper in the room. And Jordan's like, hi, Daddy. And he comes over and kisses her, and he hugs Catherine. And Pepper's like, hello, Frank. And he says he was in the neighborhood and dropped by hoping Frank was home. And he's met his lovely wife. And Catherine's like, Pepper said that you guys are working together. And he's like, can you take Jordan upstairs? Mr. Pepper and I need to talk. And Jordan's like, oh, daddy, do I have to go? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, we've got to talk about some boring work. Mm -hmm. So Catherine's like, come on, let's go take a bath. And so she takes Jordan upstairs. And Pepper's like, Frank, you have such a lovely, lovely family. You must be very happy. And Frank is like, never come to my house and stay away from my family. And Pepper is like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I'll, I'll leave at once. And then he's like at the door and he's like, I never would have come if I had any idea. And Frank just like closed the door <laughs> on him. Just <laughs> does, yeah. <laughs> But then Catherine's at the stairs and she sees all of that. And Frank just kind of looks at her like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're um, having a discussion about that for sure. Yeah. Ooh, man. So in his cell, Martin hears a voice telling him he's about to be free. Oh, yes. On the midnight special out of this wicked place. Can he see the light coming? That's freedom. Martin uses his palmed razor blade to cut off a bit of soap from a bar on the sink. He walks over and sticks it into the door lock. He then sits on the floor and slices his throat and he cries out afterwards because it hurts. And so he's like, ah, mm. and the guards run to his cell, but they can't get the door open. And Martin dies. Damn. Mm -hmm. I would not think like soap would stop the key from going in, but apparently. Yeah, I think maybe I don't know if it 
substance. I could see in? it stopping from if like you were inside, but from the outside, like that seems. Yeah, weird. I wonder if it just makes it like slick, so he's having trouble getting the stuff to engage. I don't know, but yeah, he's like he's something stuck in the lock, like he can't get it. So I don't know. Yeah, because it's that old school like Scooby Doo lock where like it's just a big hole, like you put uh-huh. the key in and turn it. So it just seems like it would push the soap back out. Not I could see like from the other direction, but I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it might be just TV shit. Who knows? So. Martin was played by Guy Fauchon. This was his second role on television. His first was actually like in a show called The Net. Anyway. Okay. He's been in other stuff, including Psych and Supernatural and Once Upon a Time. And he will be in the second to last episode of The X-Files in 2018. Nice. So, yeah, he's got some longevity going on. So, And also, like, he's totally giving me, like, Eugene Toomes vibes. Mm-hmm. Like, a little bit, yeah. So so then Martin is on a slab and his throat has been stitched up and Giebelhaus and Frank stand beside the body as the medical examiner places some scans on the light box on the wall. They discuss where the razor came from, which was my question also. Like, how did this guy get into his jail cell with the razor? Giebelhaus says he was clean into the cell block or so they're told. The medical examiner says the existence of the razor blade has led to probable conclusions on the method of death, but Mr. Martin did not die from cutting his own throat. He missed the cartoid artery and blood loss was minimal. He shows them a large dark spot on the scans. Martin died of a cerebral aneurysm. He died of natural causes. Frank says whatever killed Martin was anything but natural, and he leaves. Because it was supernatural. <laughs> supernatural. <laughs> Whoa. And this commercial, of course, because mm-hmm. someone died. So so then we're in downtown Seattle. And Frank enters the office of Alistair Pepper. And Pepper says he's so glad that Frank came by. And he offers to show him. Like, he's already got an office set aside for Frank. He's like, hey, do you want me to show you the office I got to set aside for you? And Frank says he's just seen Pepper's show of good faith. His client is dead. And Frank is like, but you already know that. And Pepper says, I was notified last night. And Frank wants to know how he did it. And Pepper smiles and says, fortuitous and timely. Hmm? Our minor conflict of interest has been resolved. And he kind of like waves his hand like, oh, God. And Frank says he doesn't think so. Pepper smiles and reminds Frank that he doesn't need to make a decision now. His offer remains open for as long as necessary. And Frank says that he's come to him before. And Pepper's like, so you've said. Frank says Pepper killed that kid and he's going to prove it. And then Pepper comes from around his desk and is like, Frank, you understand that life for you and your wonderful family can only become more difficult and more dangerous. And Frank tells Pepper not to threaten him. But Pepper says that Frank's situation may not allow him that luxury. So then Frank leaves and he goes outside and he sits in his Jeep and he's obviously frustrated. And then his pager goes off and it's a call from the Millennium Group. So he goes to a payphone and he's talking on the phone and he's talking to Mike. And Mike is like, where are you? And Frank says, well, I was heading home. And Mike is like, well, have you heard from Watts? Peter was going to meet them an hour ago. And Frank is like, where are you? And Mike says he's at his hotel. And he has something they both should see. And Frank is like, I'm on my way. 
So Frank comes out of an elevator and Peter calls his name. He tells Frank that Mike isn't there. Frank's like, well, I just spoke to him. He said it was urgent. And Peter's like, he called you? Who called me? I thought you did. And Frank says, no. So they head to Mike's room, which is 303. And there's no answer. So Frank kicks in the door. And on the mattress on the floor, Mike is clutching his slit throat. And there's this ceremonial knife that's sticking out of his chest, which, ouch. Someone in black has climbed over the ledge of the balcony and we see them drop down. So Frank looks over the ledge and sees someone in black three stories down on the ground running. Peter stays with Mike and Frank runs out to try and find the killer. The killer goes into a grocery store, the one we saw in the beginning, and Frank follows them inside. However, just as Frank enters, the camera pans across the building and we see Samuel come from around the corner and he's walking and he's looking towards the entrance. Inside the store, Frank sees Pepper at the end of an aisle. Pepper sees Frank and smiles and walks around the corner. In the next aisle, Frank sees Martin looking at him as he walks past. And then Lucy Butler walks past and looks towards Frank. Frank runs down the aisle but finds no one. Whoa. Martin, Martin's dead. Right, Martin's dead. Lucy's probably not there. It's pretty creepy. Shapeshifting Donnie Faster shit. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So Pepper comes out of the grocery, carrying the bag groceries, and we get a replay of the opener. Sam Hale watches Pepper as he approaches his huge black car. He deactivates the car alarm, puts his groceries in the back seat. Samuel closes his eyes, takes a deep breath, opens his eyes, lets the breath out. Pepper's about to get into his vehicle. He stops. He looks at Samuel. Samuel is like, by Uriel, by Raziel, powers, principalities, thrones, and dominions, I bind and command you, stand. And then Frank comes out of the store and sees the two of them. And Samuel raises his hand towards Pepper. No gun, just his palm. And it's like, I, Samuel, bound by his will, command you, depart. And as he speaks those words, we see the gun. And the onlooker's like, oh. And then Frank sees Samuel with his palm and lightning shoots out, hits Pepper in the chest. We see the gun firing. Pepper goes, oh, falls to the ground. Frank runs over. Pepper's dead. Samuel drops the gun. He says, die, you son of a bitch. Frank checks Pepper, who's dead, walks over to Samuel. Like, whoa, hey, picks up the gun. Hammer of the gun is still back. Hasn't been fired. Frank lowers the hammer and looks at Samuel. Whoa. It's essentially the exact same scene. There is one little difference I noticed, and that is when Samuel first starts speaking and Pepper turns to see him, there is a little bit different timing. At one point, Pepper shakes his head, like, you know, kind of like, no, what are you talking about? Right. And, and like, it happens before he starts speaking in the opener, and it happens after he speaks in this part. So it's a little bit of an edit cut. But otherwise, it's the exact same scene. All mm-hmm. the cuts are the mm-hmm. same. So I thought that was interesting. That was one little difference. Yeah. Well, they probably, you know, did several takes and then that's, they used different ones maybe. So Samuel is in an interrogation room. Peter and Frank watch from behind the glass. Peter says Mike had been doing some research on Pepper. Frank says that he asked him to. Peter says before Mike passed, he told him that he didn't want Frank to blame himself because Frank had asked him to leave. Frank is visibly upset and says that he did. Peter asks if he's up to hear what Mike found on Pepper, and Frank nods. Oh, so Mike's dead. Yeah. 
damn. He's had been in two episodes, and both times he gets fucked. I know, I know. Well, that's what you damn. get for working near Frank Black isn't a non-main character. So we learned that Pepper had a very successful law firm, mostly real estate law. Then six months ago, he had a heart attack. The doctors say he was technically dead for a while, but they were able to revive him. Then he changed the entire focus of his firm. Martin was actually his first criminal case. <gasps> was he a walk-in? Maybe. That wasn't him that came back from the dead. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Giebelhouse comes out and says they have a confession, but not a motive. He admits to killing Pepper, but nothing on Mike Atkins. He says they're done with him if they want some time with him. So Frank goes in. Giebelhouse gives Peter the key to the door. Frank sits down and says Samuel didn't shoot Pepper, did he? Samuel says nothing. Frank says at least he didn't see it that way. Samuel says he has a unique perspective. Frank says all along he never asked how or who, but why. Why act on Pepper? Samuel says his action made it possible. The murders, Frank asks. His future acts, Samuel says. He would not have stopped with Atkins. My family, Frank asks. Samuel says Frank must understand. Pepper suffered the consequences of his own error. Any benefit to Frank or his family was incidental. So Frank asks if none of this had to do with him. Samuel says there is no such action. He says he knows Frank grieves deeply for his friends. And then Frank's eyes begin to water and tear up, and he says yes. Samuel says, we weep for ourselves. Frank stands. Samuel tells Frank not to worry about him. What happens here can only pain him, not harm him. And then he tells Frank goodbye. Frank says he would like to speak with him again sometime, at another time. But Samuel says he is sorry. Frank has no idea how painful it is for him to be here. Frank knocks on the door and Peter lets him out. He asks Frank who Samuel is. Frank says he doesn't know. He may be part of something they were all unaware of. Peter says Mike said something like that to him as well. It made no sense to him. Mike also said Frank should love his family as much as he can and be prepared for the possibility that it might not be enough. Which I don't I don't mean to laugh about this, but I feel like Mike said a lot of things before he died. He had a lot of time. Especially I mean, for someone with their throat cut, which right. you cannot get air in there. Mm. Um, but I mean, yeah. maybe it wasn't cut deep because he was stabbed also. So maybe it was just yeah. like a, a surface cut, so. but still. Still, it, just, yeah. it was a lot of things. He was he chatty. Said. He was very chatty. He was very chatty yeah. for a dying man. Yeah. Catherine arrives and says hello to Peter. She and Frank kiss, and Frank tells Peter that it has to be enough. Catherine asks what? Frank says nothing. He just wants to take her home. They walk down the hall together, arms around each other, and Peter watches them leave. <gasps> it's over. I mean, Mike could have said that to Peter before, possibly, and not just when he died. But, yeah, he did obviously talk to him as he was dying, so, supposedly. 
Yes, so we were told quite a bit, actually, yes. Tell Frank not to blame himself for, this is my fault, because I didn't leave when he, he told me to. me to leave. Yeah. Damn, I should listen to him. Yeah. I know, so, no kidding. Jesus, talk about. I was getting rich. heavy, like, Jesus vibes from Samuel in that scene of, like. Well, I was just how... thinking Angel. I mean, it could be, but also, like, you know, I came to take care of it. You know how much it pains me. And, like, this world cannot harm me. That kind of thing, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I, could see I guess that. any I, angel would be the same way. I actually thought that uh, Peter was going to look in the room after Frank left, and he wasn't going to be there anymore. Oh, but they did not go that far. But I was, I no. was waiting for it. Yeah, yeah. This was, this was an interesting episode. It was, it was good. It did not feel like a part two for the one we just saw, other than no. it related to Fletcher's death. I mean, I no, think that it was, was complete. It makes sense. Written by different people, uh-huh. like it was a completely different episode. It just refers to the last episode because it kind of has to. Yes. So we you had can't a major just like character death. Kill a character and then move on to something mm-hmm. else. So yeah, so, yeah. What would you give this episode? You know, I I really liked it. Like the angel stuff was kind of creepy. I kind of like. I feel like I got what they were going for, and it made sense to me with the demons and the angels. I uh, normally get a little bit like, I think it's just normally not done that well, to be honest, but I liked it here. I thought it worked really well. I liked Frank. I liked Frank grieving and having problems because I feel like on TV, sometimes it does happen where like a major character dies and then we just move on. (laughs) It's just like, okay. Uh, And so I like that they actually have the character trying to cope with it and like actually actively grieving and being upset about it. And I thought that they did that really well. And so I really appreciated that. So I'm going to give it a nine. Whoa. Holy I, shit. Yeah, I really enjoyed wow. this one. I thought this one was really smart. It worked. It made sense. It was weird, but it wasn't weird in like a what the fuck way. It was weird in the like, oh, my God, that's like really fucked up way. This is your first nine for the show. Is it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was really well done. And maybe because it gave me supernatural vibes. And I don't know. That always makes me happy. But like, yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it was pretty good. So... Actually, I hadn't thought about what I was going to rate it. I mean, I, obviously, I have because I know it's what we do, but I hadn't really thought about the number wise. I will say when when we first hear, we don't know his name at the point. Well, I guess in a way we do because well, he doesn't say it until the second part. But like Samuel, like when he first speaking, I was not expecting that voice to come out of that person. He's <laughs> he's extremely soft spoken, right? And even when he's giving like these biblical commands, he's very soft spoken. And so I was a little off put by that, but then like in the later scene, it like totally works because again, I was getting, I mean, I'm assuming that he's just an angel. Right. But I was also getting like, like Jesus vibes a little Mm -hmm. bit. Like, you know, I'm, I mean, I assume any angels would be the same way, right? Like I'm here under God and I'm a good person and I'm taking care of business, but it makes more sense there. But at first I was kind of like, Oh, but I have not to think because hmm, I was thinking eight. But I think I might have to. I, I think I might have to go with nine as well because it was really done well, and I think everyone did a really good job. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with a nine also. Okay, cool. So this would be my second nine. I gave the first episode a nine because I really. Like oh right, right, right. Yeah, and you gave it an eight, so oh, close. Nice. But yeah, but I think yeah, I'm gonna go with nine too. Nice. Yeah, because it was it was really well done. 
It was, it was, yeah, it had, it, like, it, it did the angels and demons thing really well. And it brought to fruition that thing that I really wish that they would have carried forth with the judge, which, I mean, in a way they kind of did, but not explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, who wrote the judge? Is it the same dude? I don't know. Let's see here. Um, no, it's not. It's not, yeah, not at all. Not the same person at all. So, but yeah, but it's like they, like they obviously are directly referencing that because Frank Frank doesn't seem to remember, which I would think you would, but we remember. Like that's exactly what happened in the judge, right? He's sitting with him in the interrogation room, and he offers him the job, and like mm-hmm. you know, hey, things would be totally different. I know you're not happy. Your family will be safe. All that kind of shit. And I'm like, oh, right. and they just let him like die. He's eaten by pigs, so it was kind of like, oh, no, disappointing. But yeah, so like the physical form doesn't matter. It seems. Yeah, so he did come to him before. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So yeah. Nine. 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 Yep. Yeah, I agree. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. Can we both gave episode eighteen, the first part, a seven, and we both gave this part a nine, <laughs> which I think is the first time the second part has ever gotten higher ratings. I know in the X Files, <laughs> second part usually always gets lower ratings. I think almost. I think. I th- yeah. Yeah. I think most of the time, or it's the same for me usually. But yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. And again, this did not feel as much like a two parter as like you know. I can. I mean, it obviously continues the story, but no, it's a serialized television show, right? So it just makes sense. Like this. Oh yeah, this is the next episode because. The guy yeah. died, and then now you're dealing with it. So, it's, but it doesn't have to be a two-parter. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Come on, Millennium. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep yeah, it up. I know we're getting towards the end of the season, so just yeah, we only know, got three more episodes this season. Don't have to do. Just so. skate along. You'll be okay. Yeah. Well, don't skate along because that's gonna be like then you're just <laughs> you know, like keep it up. Like like be good. Don't just don't just rest on your laurels, right? Just be, yes. You know. Yeah. 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 So, all right. All right. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. I Want to Rewatch is where we talk about the X-Files and X-Files adjacent television and films. If you like what we're doing, check out our show notes for ways to support the podcast And of course, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time. And together, we'll try to figure out if if the the truth truth is still out there. The truth is what we make of it.
da, da, da. Okay. All right. I came back and it was all like, do you want to save this? And I'm like, oh, God damn it. But then as soon as I hit saved, it was already done. So like it had assumed that I wanted to, I guess, and processed it all. Well, that was gone. So that was good. I thought I was oh, play. yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Are you getting that message now or is that still just me? No, what I did... get it. But okay. like sometimes, but like it seems to always just save it anyway. So I don't really know what the point yeah, is. Okay. Well, I remember the first time I saw it, you said you didn't see it, but you might not have gotten the update yet, I guess, or something. So. Yeah, I don't know. My Zoom did some weird shit this weekend and, like, updated, and I don't even know, but it's fine. Okay. Cool. Cool. Hey, as long as it's fucking recording the podcast, that's all I care about. <laughs> I can hear you, and you can hear me, and we've got some episodes to put out. Win-win. Yep. So. <laughs> Yay. That's what yeah. matters. <laughs> 